Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. Last episode, we examined the eventful economic developments of the era of Radama. From 1817 until 1828, under Radama's reformist administration, Madagascar began a process of rapid metamorphosis, evolving from an agrarian and rural society into an increasingly urbanized country with growing cash crop and manufacturing sectors of the economy. While the development seemed unabashedly positive, however, Today we'll learn about the more complex reality on the ground, while Radama's unexpected and sudden demise leaves the future of his modernization reforms in danger. Today we learn about his successor, the equal parts infamous and misunderstood monarch, Empress Rana Falona. Season 4, Episode 18. The Rise of the Mad Queen of Madagascar. Mpanjaka Radama died young. While the exact cause of his death varies from report to report, it's clear that the king's lifestyle of intense drinking to calm his nerves after exhausting military campaigns and tense meetings with European diplomats contributed to his death. And as if that wasn't enough stress on its own, the king also had to worry about the seldom relaxing world of domestic politics. While much of the last episode was dedicated to the exact nature of Radama's policies, we actually didn't get much into how these policies were being received by his subjects. And the answer is that, by all accounts, they weren't received very well. While we didn't focus on this much last episode, it's time to get a bit critical of Verdama's policies. Now, last episode featured a long diatribe about the concept of modernity, and how, despite being so widely used and abused, modern is a very difficult-to-describe concept. Well, one of the main criticisms often leveled against the notion of modernization is that, in practice, so-called modernization is often hard to distinguish from westernization. In the case of Madagascar, it's certainly easy to make that connection. Radama's modernization grew heavily from trying to incorporate elements from western, particularly British and masquerine creole, cultures. Some of these changes were quite obvious. The army used imported uniforms, and resembled a typical Napoleonic-era European army more than any African force. Many of the new factories and homes popping up throughout Imerina, including the Tranufola Royal Palace, clearly drew heavy influence from masquerine architecture, and many were even built by Creole or European architects. While foreign missionary schools were spreading literacy throughout Imerina, but it was literacy in the Latin script, while the traditional Surabe system, which had been used to record Malagasy for generations, was increasingly at risk of becoming extinct. While missionaries hadn't produced much success in converting people's religion, a small Christian community was beginning to rise in the country as well. Not to mention the immigration of hundreds of European or Creole missionaries and specialists into the country. Now, how you feel about these developments is totally up to you. Dramatic social transformations will always produce mixed reactions from the public, especially when they seemingly threaten the status quo that the public is used to, and even more when they are endorsed and supported by the authorities. In our narrative, we've had a few hints that there might have been some brewing backlash against Radama's xenophilic policies, such as Kelly Malasa's leaders becoming outraged by missionaries cooking pork near the Sampia Shrine, but these stories don't truly capture just how widespread this resentment was becoming. By the later years of Verdama's rule, backlash against his policies was becoming increasingly commonplace. 
Among the elites of Imerina, one of their main objections was that the employment of foreigners in government positions was undermining the social system of Hasina. Remember, the Merina social structure justified its existence largely through the esoteric concept of Hasina, a type of supernatural virtue which can be transferred from God, the universe, and the spirit of the ancestors into individual human beings and communities through the honoring of Sampie. The Merina social system relied heavily on a transactional relationship between the secular authorities and religious authorities. Sampie guardians offered gifts and sacrifices of food and animals to the Sampie, and in return, gave the Hasina it offered to the king as compensation for maintaining social order and supporting the Sampie guardians. But the king was the ultimate source of Hasina, the immediate line between heaven and earth, and could offer Hasina to the people as a reward for good labor or orderly behavior. Two major shifts in labor threatened this dynamic. The increasing use of European and Mascarene specialist workers, as well as the growing dependence on enslaved workers in agricultural products. Starting with the latter, slavery had existed in Imerina for a long time, but it had largely existed either as a criminal punishment, as a means to pay tribute to foreign Sakalava overlords, or as a trade good to sell to European, Arab, and Swahili merchants. Particularly during Radama's rule, though, a combination of his abolition of the slave trade and the large people captured during wars against his neighbors not only dramatically grew the population of enslaved people living in Imerina, but also saw domestic slavery begin to expand for the first time. By 1820, nearly a third of Imerina's population was enslaved. By 1830, the numbers of enslaved workers had inflated to such a high degree that nearly a third of the entire population of Imerina were enslaved. The rising population of enslaved people caused problems on multiple fronts, some of which will come up later. But in particular, it caused special problems for Hasina ideology. A big part of the ideology of Hasina revolves around ancestral land and being descended from ancestors who own the land that you live and work on. People who were not descended from the original landholders could not receive Hasina from local Sampie provided through the ancestors. Of course, Merina settlers and conquered land got around this restriction by forcing local families to recognize settlers as the inheritors of the mantle of Topontanyi, making these settler families the official inheritors of the land itself and the blessings of the land's ancestors, which is a uh, pretty messed up when you think about it, like, we're not only going to take your land, but we're also going to force you to retroactively declare that it was always actually our land. Anyways, enslaved people were, of course, not from the land they work on, so they lacked ancestors attached to the land, and therefore could not receive blessings of Hasina. The lack of local ancestors attached to the land was also the root of the problem when it came to foreign workers. In both cases, it caused issues. Hasina formed the backbone of the entire Merina social order, a trickling essence that reached all people from the guardians to the king to the Andriana to the Deme leaders to peasants. And since it did not apply to enslaved workers or foreigners, people from the upper ranks of society could not expect the same deference and obedience from enslaved or foreign workers that they could from locals. Now, in the case of enslaved workers, uh, it didn't really matter too much. After all, this is slavery we're talking about. The workers did not have any choice or power to ignore or conflict with people of higher social ranks. But for foreign workers, it was a different story. Due to Hasina not applying to them, 
foreign workers were an enigma in Marina society, a big old question mark that didn't neatly fit into any category. This social ambiguity often came to a head during building projects, where foreign workers often ideologically clashed with local Andriana and Sampier guardians. One of these arguments, in 1826, broke out when a French immigrant employed by Radama was working on a building site, when he was suddenly approached by a group of irate Sampier guardians. The land in which they were building was under the dominion of their Sampier, and the fact that someone who could not even receive Hasina was building there was an outrage. Eventually, Radama himself had to come down and sort out the situation. The immigrant, led in an oath by Radama, officially renounced his French identity and declared himself an adopted son of Imerina, and by extension, Ejofa. The Sampia guardians were forced to compromise and provided the proper blessings of Hasina to the newly Merinaized Frenchman. While this particular case worked out, such a smooth resolution was quite rare. And while the ideological disdain for foreigners and enslaved people from the elites was one aspect, a growing resentment was also forming among the working classes, though motivated by more material concerns. Radama's economic reforms had aimed to improve Imerina's faltering economy, and, well, they hadn't exactly succeeded. While progress in industrializing was impressive, it was still in its very, very early stages. By 1828, many of the factories which Radama had opened were still in the process of constructing facilities and acquiring a labor force. In fact, the only factories that were actually working in any serious capacity were, of course, the forges at Amorunque and a single leather tanning plant north of Antanarifu. While the process was occurring, the fruits had not actually manifested yet. But what had manifested was an acute decline in skilled labor dedicated to the sector where most Hofa actually worked, agriculture. The rising population of domestic slaves meant that the traditional peasant class, the Hufa, found themselves increasingly no longer needed in rice fields. When called to perform fanampuana, they increasingly found themselves not working on a familiar farm, but rather in a factory or urban building project. Instead of farmers, these hofa that did remain in the countryside were now typically employed as overseers. Additionally, absentee landlordism was becoming a growing problem as well. Andriana and Deme leaders, figuring that their enslaved workers could essentially be managed by their overseers on their own, often left their ancestral lands in the hands of their overseers to go work in a more lucrative position as an administrator in Antanarifu. While these new jobs as overseers or factory workers were not necessarily worse, and in some cases were inarguably materially better than farm work, it was a tough transition to make. Malgasy culture exalted the ties of people to their land, with agricultural labor forming a continuity between the people and their ancestors. If you were a Hufa man working on a field, then you could confidently say that you had a connection to your ancestors, who had worked on that same field as you for generations going back. But while this resentment was boiling, the prestige, Hasina, and of course material power of the king made him immune from direct criticism. Resentment was present but unspoken. While the Demes struggled from royal divestments in agriculture, the king pranced around with his foreign buddies, cosplaying as a European king, gorging himself on western rum, while investing in frivolous manufacturing centers instead of the canals and farms which were the proven Andre of Imerina's economy. Then, when Radama suddenly passed away in 1828, these sentiments were no longer restrained. 
Radama's death was entirely unexpected, and therefore he had done little to designate an official heir. Suddenly, the future of Imerina, Madagascar, and everyone living within it was uncertain during a time of tremendous upheaval. And to make matters worse, Rodama had crucially left the army in a state of limbo with his death. While the Merina military of previous eras had been composite forces of local militias drafted together into a singular army, Rodama's military was significantly more centralized, with much of the military structure relying on dictates from Rodama himself. As you might expect, when the news of Rodama's death was announced, Merina elite society was divided on who to support as his successor. Now, ordinarily, the eldest son of Radama's official wife, Queen Ramafu, would have been the default choice to succeed the king. However, no such tile existed. Radama's marriage to Ramafu had been, from its very conception, a loveless and dry political affair. For that reason, it was also, well, entirely sexless. The two had never had children together, despite the fact that we know that both of them were perfectly physically capable of doing so. Radama had many children with other wives, while Ramafu later had a son from another man after Radama's passing. But while Radama had never gone as far as officially announcing an heir, he had strongly hinted that his personal favorite to succeed him was his daughter, a woman named Raketaka. Raketaka was the daughter of Radama and his Sakala wife. She was also four years old, and only half Merina, and therefore not a very popular choice to succeed as monarch among the majority of Merina elites. So, regardless of Radama's personal desires, the actual favorite in the race to succeed the throne was widely perceived to be his nephew, a young man named Rakotube. At a young age, Rakotube had been among the group of Merina youth to travel overseas for education. He was an intelligent and capable young man, and well-liked within certain circles of Antanarifo's bureaucracy. He was also, well, a man. Merina women were largely kept out of positions of power, and attempts by Merina women to assert themselves as political players were often violently frustrated. In fact, one of the few examples of a movement of politically active women in Merina history ended in bloody catastrophe. At one point during Radama's rule, a group of women assembled in the Rufa Fantana Rifu. As part of Radama's desire to westernize the army, he required soldiers to cut their hair short, just like western armies did. The women in the palace had assembled to protest against this measure, since the traditions of certain Merina groups favored a practice of women braiding their husbands' long hair as a sign of affection. Therefore, these women, whose husbands were in the military, requested that the army allow their husbands to grow out their hair, and were then promptly and brutally massacred by the soldiers. This gives you a good idea of how the Merina court felt about the idea of women asserting themselves politically. Rakotube, on the other hand, had a propensity towards friendliness with European missionaries, and was reportedly also, well, a huge nerd, spending hours at a time studying biblical texts while showing no interest in manly things like politics and war, which drove other circles of Merina politics away from him. Soon, a new political clique formed, with a diverse array of people unified in their goal of preventing Rakotube from seeing the throne. Sampie guardians made up a substantial portion of the clique, for uh, obvious reasons. They thought that the spread of Christianity and the importation of foreign labor obviously threatened their social power. More crucial to the clique, however, were its supporters in the military. Members of the clique in the military background had their own individual motivations for joining, 
ranging from their own personal disdain of Christian missionaries to a secular effort to elevate their rank above those of Western advising officers, or, in some cases, a simple career's desire to advance more generally. Seeking a potential alternative candidate to Rakotobe, the conspirators rallied around Ramafu. In 1828, before Radama's funeral had even began, the clique launched their coup. Rakotobe and his family were apprehended and imprisoned, and soon thereafter, executed. He was joined by numerous other members of the royal family, including several of Radama's brothers, wives, and children, with only the four-year-old Raketaka being spared. The army rallied around Ramafu, as she was declared the new Mpanjaka Merina, the first ever woman to hold such a title. As Mpanjaka Merina had done in the past, she was christened with a new name to accompany her new position. In an ironic twist, the Malgasi queen chose her name based on a mean-spirited nickname that her husband gave her, Rana Falona. The name means she who is neatly folded but not to be worn, varyingly translated also as she who is set to the side. The nickname had always implied that she was Radama's least favorite wife, a political piece for his mantle, not a woman who he loved. But given that she chose to keep this name as a royal title, it seemed that she liked it that way. Now, as I alluded to at the start of the episode, Rana Faluna will perhaps have the most sensationalist reputation of any Malgasi ruler in history. This reputation has penetrated so deep into her historical legacy that, well, it's kinda impossible to tell her story without addressing it first. So, Rana Faluna's reputation among the history-concerned public has typically been, uh, not great. She is primarily remembered as an infamous character, Madagascar's greatest historical villain. She's also a first for the History of Africa podcast. As far as I can tell, Rana Faluna is the first historical figure featured on this podcast to have a full, book-length pop history biography. I think the biography's title is a pretty good summation of how Rana Falona is viewed by the public. Female Caligula, the Mad Queen of Madagascar. She is, in pop history, everything Radama wasn't. While he was forward-thinking and cosmopolitan, she was reactionary and xenophobic. While he desired industrialization and free trade, she desired self-sufficiency and autarky. And, from the conception of a 19th century European, he was civilized and recognized European superiority. Rana Falona was savage and clung to her African ways. Now, this may or may not surprise you, but it turns out that the truth behind Rana Falona is a lot more nuanced and complex than the depiction of her as a crazy, bloodthirsty villain. As we get into her biography, it will become obviously apparent that she did not earn this reputation entirely unfairly, but that the truth is a lot more complicated. Depicting her as the antithesis of her late husband is even more unusual, for reasons that you might have already just picked up on from that summary of their supposed opposite traits. Not only does it misrepresent Rana Falona's character, but in many ways, the depiction of her as the opposite of Radama also misrepresents her late husband. Following the execution of her nephew in 1828, Rana Falona had quickly secured an iron grip on the state with the support of her military allies. Those who had supported the coup were, of course, rewarded, with nobody receiving a greater reward than a noble officer named Andrea Mihaja. A veteran officer, 
Andrea Mihaj had been the lead architect of Radama's war against Menabe, and had also been one of Ranafalona's earliest and most committed allies in her struggle for power. But his relationship with the queen went much further than that. Rumors around the two were abound, with many suspecting that Ranafalona had been engaged in an illicit affair with Andrea Mihaj since prior to her husband's death. There is not a lot of evidence for this affair, so when it exactly started is uh, unclear, but the two had certainly developed a romantic relationship after Radama's death. Just a year after her husband's passing, Rana Faluna birthed a child with Andrea Mihaja, a young boy named Rakuto. He won't matter for quite a while, but keep him in the back of your mind for future episodes. While Rana Faluna had managed to secure power, her gender was quickly becoming a problem. The Medina Kingdom had never been ruled by a woman before, outside of Rana Faluna herself briefly acting as a regent when Radama was out on campaign. And there was a real possibility that, absent of a male authority figure, Imerina's newly conquered provinces would rebel. With this in mind, Andrea Mihaja was selected to serve as a secondary head of state. While this relationship was largely informal and therefore lacked a title, Later Malagasy politicians in similar positions would adopt a Malagasy pronunciation of a Western title, Prime Ministra, or Prime Minister. Retroactively, due to his de facto holding of a similar position, Andrea Mihaja is often labeled in Malagasy history as the country's first Prime Minister. Now, as I mentioned, officers who supported Rana Faluna's coup had a diverse set of reasons for participating. While resentment against Rulama's policies was a major factor for some officers, Andrea Mihaja was definitely more in the careerist camp. In fact, the new prime minister seemed to agree pretty squarely with most of Radama's policies. He had attended one of the missionary schools, learned to write Malagasy in the Latin alphabet, dressed in western clothes, and was even baptized as a Christian. Ironically, for a coup which contained so many reactionary elements seeking a return to tradition, the man who became prime minister on its back was the purest embodiment of the westernized Medina elite. Thus, despite the supposed hostile nature of the coup against missionary influence, the missionary schools remained open after it took place. Now, the schools were temporarily shut down for a few months as a mourning exercise for Radama, as all non-essential government functions were supposed to suspend for six months after the death of a sovereign, but they quickly reopened. But despite state endorsement, the reopening of the schools caused a non-negligible outrage among radical Santiagardians and their followers. In March of 1829, the first major outbreak of anti-Christian violence occurred in Malgasi history, when an anti-Christian lynch mob attacked a mission school near the town of Ambuipenu. A missionary from Mauritius, along with several of his students, were dragged from their home, beaten, and then forced to make an apology to the local Saint-Pierre for disrupting the proper order. The students were then killed, while the missionary barely survived his wounds long enough to return to Mauritius, where he promptly expired after. Amboipenu represented the first major crack in the relationship between the missionary schools and the Medina kingdom. The Medina government, to assuage the fear of other schools, began to post armed guards outside to prevent similar attacks. But as Rana Faluna and her government dedicated more and more resources to protecting missionary schools, they began to exert increasing influence on the schools themselves. Previously, missionary schools had functioned largely as private, autonomous institutions. But now that state resources needed to be devoted to these schools, 
Rana Falona thought that it was only fair that the state should have some say on what was going on within their walls. New quotas were introduced to allow greater numbers of women to attend the schools, as well as to restrict the schools only to the upper class. The government also required approval on all hirings and firings of missionary teachers. To quote the headmaster of one school on the growing level of control Rana Falona wielded over the educational system, The number of scholars is fixed by the government, and is an affair over which we have no control. The government also regulates the stations, the towns, the villages, the proportions to be presented by the different classes of the people, the proportion of males and females. The government also provides the schoolroom and makes the very duties of the teacher a government service. Compared to the schools, however, Rana Falona and Andrea Mihaj possessed a more pressing problem. In the realm of foreign policy, Rama's death and the messy Merina transition of power encouraged many of the kingdom's enemies and subjects alike to challenge Merina authority. The king of Boigny, the northern Sakalava kingdom, took the opportunity to invade and recapture towns which Rama had conquered from him, before he was eventually overthrown and replaced with a queen. This means that, yes, the northern Sakalava kingdom of Boigny, at the same time that Imerina was under Rana Falona's rule, was also being reigned over by a powerful female sovereign. In fact, both of Boigny's last two leaders were queens, one of whom would become the last great defender of Sakalav independence, even though she was only just a child. If you'd like to learn more about the last Sakalav queens and their battles of resistance against Merina conquest, then you can learn more by listening to our premium episode at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Meanwhile, the Antankaran people of the north rose in rebellion against their Merina masters. But by far the most threatening uprising, and that which would have the most lasting impact on Malgasi history, was that of the Betsini Sirak of Tormesina. Sensing that the time had come to reassert their independence, a group of Betsini Saraka and local Creoles rose up in rebellion and barricaded the city. Now, the Betsini Saraka themselves proved not to be an especially concerning threat. The rebel army of about 3,000 armed but untrained men crumbled pretty quickly in the face of Merina military power, but the real danger of the rebellion came in what happened next. A new player entered the politics of Merina, one which had been mostly marginal until now, the Empire of France. French influence in Madagascar had been primarily mercantile throughout the show so far. However, the French had been watching the burgeoning relationship between the Merina and their British rivals with a mixture of concern and envy. French colonial holdings in the area were reduced to the island of Réunion, at the time called Bourbon, and a couple of small forts around Tuamasina, as well as a small penal colony on the island of Nocier-Baraja. While French merchants still enjoyed strong relations with the Sakalava kingdoms of Boigny and Menabe, French efforts to increase influence on the island had been frustrated by both the British and Merina empires. The British had supported the ruler of Toamasina, Jean René, in part because of his success in warding off French attempts to exert their holdings and next the city. When Radama took over Toamasina, he also conquered the small French forts located in the city and expelled their garrisons. Relations between the French and Merina further deteriorated when the Merina expanded at the expense of the French's Sakalav allies. Like many of the people whose territories had been captured by the Merina, the French decided that the chaos following Radama's death was the perfect time to reclaim what they had lost. In 1829, hearing of the Betsimi Saraka uprising and assuming that it meant Merina vulnerability, French ships began bombarding Merina fortresses in their northwestern territories. 
Rana Falona, called for mediation between her country and France. While the French agreed to negotiate, they sent a military captain to represent them at the summit who proved quite hawkish, often refusing to outright state the French justifications for their hostility. The captain alternatively tried to justify his attack with the attacks on the missionary schools, despite the fact that the missionaries were not French citizens and that the Marina government was protecting the missionaries, as well as pivoting towards historical claims on Tuomasina. He also possessed a generally dismissive attitude towards Rana Falona himself, which didn't help matters. The negotiations went nowhere, and later that year, the captain bombarded Tuomasina and landed an army in the city. It turned out, however, that the rumors of Marina weakness had been greatly exaggerated. When the French marched inland from Tuomasina, they were shocked to encounter a well-armed Marina army of 14,000 men, equipped with modern firearms and artillery. After some close calls, the Marina army bested their French foes, who fled to their boats in Tuomasina and returned to their colony in Réunion. At least for now, the desire for a French colony in mainland Madagascar was extinguished. While the French attack had been defeated, it still had a profound effect on the future of Imerina. The attempted invasion disturbed Ranafaluna on multiple accounts. For starters, the invasion had not been clearly provoked and was obviously just motivated by opportunism, highlighted by the French captain's reluctance to actually identify his motive for invading. Moreover, the British, Imerina's allies, had simply stood there and watched as this unprovoked attack took place. Finally, while the Merina army did emerge victorious, the battle hadn't been that one-sided, proving that the country could be vulnerable to future attacks if it didn't prepare in the future. This 1829 war with France fundamentally transformed Rana Falona's views, as well as much of the Merina bureaucracy. The British's refusal to aid Merina through their war severely tarnished their image in the minds of Merina's elites. By extension, André Mihaja, the Queen's lover, Prime Minister, and a noted Anglophile who had spent the first weeks of the French invasion insisting that the British would surely come to their help, was removed from his post. He would then live in exile for a couple more years, before later being accused of sexually pursuing women in the royal family. He was executed in 1831. With André Mihaja out of the picture, Rana Faluna could no longer reliably count on a male Prime Minister to serve as the head of state of her country. While she would go on to promote a new prime minister, Rana Faluna had come to understand that the existence of such a position clearly undermined her own authority and prestige, and was potentially too ephemeral to maintain the confidence of the nation. She could not simply continue to be the queen of Madagascar, a pawn of an army officer and over his head. During her coronation, she had encouraged her subjects to accept the ideal of a woman as ruler, and they had not. If her subjects' minds couldn't change then, Rana Falona would have to change herself. In 1831, in a public assembly in the Irofa of Antanarifo, Rana Falona declared, quote, I am not a woman. I am a man. For it is I who represent the rulers of the Twelve Sacred Hills just as much as Andre Nampoinimerina did. This mantra defined Rana Falona's philosophy on governing. While she would later go on to acknowledge herself as a woman, she was a man when ruling. In the aftermath of the 1829 invasion, Rana Falona decided she could no longer rely on foreign weapons imports in times of war. She dramatically reignited her late husband's industrialization reforms, but in a much different manner. Join us in our next episode, 
as the female king of Madagascar attempts to turn her island kingdom into an impregnable industrial fortress. The Malgasy War Machine is born. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayof Magbamie, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, Bibi Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebelabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Makocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwawadike, Sheyun Olorontimain, Kwachua Mankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badou, Rassan Firgiani, Niti, Kitty, and Tariq Beetleman, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.